The Strategic Living Podcast, episode number 290, The Lens of Grace, an interview with my great friend, Scott Prickett. Welcome to the Strategic Living Podcast, a program dedicated to helping you achieve personal healing, discover your strategic purpose, and lead with maximum impact. Our goal is to challenge your thinking, expand your vision, and awaken the strategic influencer in you. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here is your next level mentor and coach, and the host of the Strategic Living Podcast, Brian Holmes. Well, how do you see yourself? How you see you is a really big deal, you know. How you view others in your life determines the quality of the relationships you have and the outcomes you experience. Hey, today I'm incredibly excited to introduce you to one of my closest friends, Scott Prickett. We're talking about his newest book and how you can begin to see life through the lens of grace. Honored to have you with us. Let's get started, everybody. Well, today I get to introduce you to Scott Prickett, a gentleman who has become one of my closest friends. Uh, in many ways, he's certainly a peer, but man, the Bible says iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Scott's the kind of person that if you're around him very long, you will be sharpened. He is a confidant, he's a collaborative associate and someone that I have tremendous trust in, and also somebody that I value uh, very much in my life, and he and his wife in the life of my wife and I. So, hey, here's the situation. Uh, Scott is an enigma. He is such a unique leader. He has experience in corporate America in middle management. He's been a tank commander in the U.S. Army. He's owned multiple businesses. He has practiced law as a defense attorney and has so many incredible stories about that. And through all of the life experiences and all the things that he's done along the way, he has gained so much experience and understanding and wisdom as it relates to living life strategically, living life free, and really becoming everything that God has created you to be. Now, Scott is also an ordained minister. He is someone who is involved very heavily in local church leadership as a pastor, and he leads another nonprofit organization we'll talk more about later in the program. But I'm telling you, this guy has such a brilliant and unique perspective because of the diversity of experience he has in his lifetime. Now, Scott was raised in a Christian environment. He, like many people, found a season of life where he kind of pushed back and rebelled against that. And he, in his words, he raised a bunch of hell for a lot of years. <laughs> and then he had a quantum encounter with the creator. And you'll hear more about that a little bit later. This guy has been leading, developing, growing people, building people for many, many years. He currently serves as the executive director of Fellowship of the Sword Ministries and as an elder and pastor at Heritage Community Church in Grapevine, Texas. I want to bring you today what is going to be part one in this great interview with Scott Prickett. This is not an episode you want to hurry through or glaze over. 
I would encourage you not to put it on 1.25 or 1.5 or double speed. You're going to want to take in every word. The book that we're talking about, the concepts we're talking about, the principles we're talking about will absolutely change your life. I believe with all my heart that these two interviews back-to-back this week and next week are going to make a huge difference in your growth, your development, and how you see yourself and how you see others through the lens of grace. Let's go right now directly to my interview with Scott Prickett. Scott, it's great to have you on the program today, man. Great to have you here in the office with me. Yeah, my pleasure. It's an honor, and uh, it's always a good time to get to come down here and spend some time with you. So let me let me just kind of clue our folks in that are listening to the program. You and I, we have a relationship outside of just being a podcast guest. Uh, we've been friends now for, gosh, since 2013, and God has kind of graced my life with you in relationship and, and our wives connected and it's just been a blessing in our lives, and, and my audience knows that I talk about 2012 when I went on this event with men, and, and that just completely, fundamentally changed the direction of my life. Well, it was the program that you're very much a part of, which we'll talk more about later, uh, but since 2012 and then 2013, uh, some of these events that we went on together, gosh, man, it's been an awesome run just hanging out with you and doing life and growing together and challenging each other, so uh, it's just especially nice to have you here with me today. Yeah, thank you. I enjoy it too. I, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking about it. And I think the reason that we find such life in the relationship, and, and I, I agree with you about not only between you and I, but our families as well, is because the relationship is incredibly authentic. And so the authentic uh, interactions just bring a lot of life and a lot of, uh, a lot of laughs also at the same time. We do laugh a little bit, don't we? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, you're right about that. So uh, great to have you with us. Listen, man, a couple things I want to talk about today. We're just going to have a conversation here. Uh, One, at some point in this program, we're going to talk about Fellowship of the Sword Ministries specifically because I've shared this with so many people in our audience because they've asked, hey, what happened on your this quest thing you went on? What was that like? How did that change your life? I talked all the time about going to Colorado in the summertime and doing some cool stuff there with couples. That also is a part of the Fellowship of the Sword culture and, and dynamic, and uh, you are a vital part of that now. We'll talk more about that. What I really want to talk about primarily, though, is your newest book called Abundant and Free, Seeing Life Through the Lens of Grace. Anyone that has been around Brian and Sabrina for any length of time know that we have a very strong and high value on personal freedom and personal healing. And not only do you talk about that in the book, but you also talk about how to put on a different set of glasses and see every aspect of life through this lens you call grace. So give us a backdrop on the book. How did you come about uh, teaching this initially, then writing the book? What was the process for you in, in understanding more about how this works? Sure. So what I've found is the things that the Lord takes us to to teach that uh, find value in the lives of others that people come up to you afterwards and go, wow, can I hear more about that? Or man, God really spoke to me through that or however they express their appreciation. Uh, in my experience, nine times out of 10 come out of some kind of personal struggle. 
the personal struggle really leads us to a place of revelation. And that revelation is first realized on a personal level, uh, eventually to the point where it's uh, appropriate to share it. And so that's the same. That's the truth for how I came to some of the stuff I wrote about in Abundant and Free. I was in the middle of a really challenging season uh, with an employment situation. And I set up lunch with a friend of mine who is a minister and really insightful uh, counselor and friend. And as we met for lunch, the truth of the matter is uh, we had flirted back and forth about the possibility of me coming to work for him and his organization. And when I reached out to him to have lunch, I was thinking we would continue that conversation. We sit down for lunch and it wasn't just a few minutes into the conversation. He sat back and he goes, wow, I'm just here to minister to you today, aren't I? And I think I had tears in my eyes by that point. I said, well, maybe so. It was just a tough time. And so he really started pointing me to grace. And like any teaching, like any opportunity we have to grow, the teacher is a prompt or a facilitator or a catalyst to get you going. But the things that the things that got that change on you, the change in you over the long term, where God transforms you from the inside out, become between you and Him. So that was true in this case as well. My friend started down the road of talking about grace and pointing me towards some thoughts and some readings and some teachings on grace. But really, it was me and the Lord spending time over a series of weeks, if not months, where I just pursued and pursued and pursued, and I started to see things deeper and more differently than I'd ever seen them. Before, I I frankly would have already considered myself a bit of a grace guy, and the Lord just gave me a deeper, more clear understanding of how good His grace really is for us. Let me just kind of throw this in the mix. Your background is one, military, two, you're an attorney. Correct. And so, especially as you practice law, and I've heard you tell some of these stories, uh, I would suspect that in the earlier years, your perspective of this concept, for example, might have been a little bit different. So can you draw a contrast between, you know, how most people approach tragedy, difficulty, failure, all those things in life, juxtaposition to how you're seeing it through this new lens? Yeah. So it's interesting because when I was practicing law, uh, predominantly my practice was focused on criminal defense. That really wasn't necessarily by design. It's the doors that opened. It's the thing that just kind of took hold for me. And I started uh, representing quite a few criminal defense clients, many of which were court appointed. In other words, they couldn't afford a lawyer. They had done something to get them charged with a crime and they could not afford uh, uh, defense. So I was appointed by the court. I would try about a hundred of those a month. So it was very high volume. Mm. And in in the course of doing that, I saw greater revelation and depth of the kingdom of God in and out of jails, in and out of courtrooms with people that were busted up and just kind of jacked up from the floor up uh, than I probably have in most other more formal settings. So one of the things that was a little bit, I guess, surprising to me after a while, but also something I had to work through myself was well-intending Christians would often say to me, how do you defend guilty people? How, how do you, with your belief system, go up there with people who have broken the law and defend them in a court of law? And it was interesting because on the very surface level, there's some merit to that question. As I dug in deeper to considering it for myself, I found it to be really uh, just a mistake in perspective. And one thing was, 
I never lied in court. There's a there's an ethical obligation in the court that's it's called the duty of candor before the tribunal. And what it means is not only can't I lie, I can't conceal the truth. I have to be forthright with things. If I'm misleading before the court, then I potentially risk my license to practice law. So it's not like I went in and made up things to get people off of uh, crimes they might have committed. The the thing came to kind of a real clear head for me when I took on my first felony client. And I'm sorry, it wasn't my first felony client, but it was my first real serious, uh, there was a real victim. This was a big deal. It was beyond kind of a typical DWI or possession of marijuana. This was, there was some offenses that were committed with a minor and there was the, the, the client or potential client came in my office and as this potential client poured out their story, they were about to be arrested for the first time in their life. And in my mind, I started to pray, God, what do I do with this? Because this is pretty real and I don't know if I'm really in a place to defend this, so to speak. And when the client got done talking, I said, I don't know if I'm going to take your case or not. All I can offer you right now is this. You're about to have a judge and you're about to have a prosecutor. And what I'm going to offer you is I won't be either of those things. I won't play that role in your life. That was in some ways the beginning of this unfolding where I started to see the power of advocacy that isn't based on guilt or innocence or performance. So I say that to answer your question in kind of a long form, in real practical ways, we face those opportunities every day. We face them with our spouses and with our children and with coworkers and wherever we go, people do things good and bad, right and wrong. And we have an opportunity to view them through that justice lens, or we decide instead to come alongside them and be in relationship that's grace-based. You and I were discussing this a while back. And you shared with me that in your relationship with your wife, for example, that over the last number of months, as you've been writing this book and processing through this understanding, that you recognize that, as you just described, there were things about your wife that either one irritated you or upset you or, or whatever, or, or you wish would be done differently, whatever. And somewhere along the way, you had an awareness that I need to apply this lens to these situations because in doing so, it has the potential of fundamentally changing the relationship here. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I'm not asking you to give personal examples that are detailed necessarily, but the point is is that uh, we talk to people who are emerging leaders, entrepreneurs, business owners, ministry leaders, uh, many of whom, uh, well, all of us in some way have meaningful relationships, whether it's a spouse, uh, a child, business partner, other ministry leaders that are working with us, whatever the case may be. And as we are dealing with people, and by the way, you can't really live life unless you're a hermit without dealing with people. This, this deal is a big deal. And uh, thank you for, by the way, for, for holding me accountable because I need it like more often than not. But the point is, is that how do you approach those kinds of situations through the lens of grace? So versus justice. Sure. So I don't think, so working from kind of a simplistic concept that you can't give away what you don't have. I think the first thought that that I would point out is this. We really aren't called to be grace manufacturers. We're called and positioned to be distributors, not manufacturers. 
We're here to distribute grace, not manufacture it. Here's how that matters. If you haven't received grace for yourself, then the attempts that we'll have in marriages, businesses, those relationships you just referenced in your example, it's going to be a constant grind. And I suspect that you're actually going to bang your head up against the wall as much as you're going to find any kind of sweet spot of relationship. When we know we're, when we're walking in a sweet spot of grace, it starts first and foremost with us and our identity. If we're in a comfortable, assured, confident spot, uh, identity wise, then from that place, we're going to be graceful, literally full of grace, therefore giving grace. So the, the catalyst or the, one of the biggest events for me was on one of the marriage encounters you just, you just referenced. For me, it was in 2012. Uh, we were on a marriage event you probably referenced before. It's called Q1 or Quest for Oneness. And we'd gotten most of the way through the week and it had been a really good week. I mean, really great teaching, good connection and talking through some, th- some things with my wife. And we got almost, we were the second to last day. And I got up early one morning just to have a cup of coffee and read and just kind of start the day. I think it was around 6 a.m. And I was sitting by myself on a couch um, in a living room setting. No one else was in the room. And I picked up a book. I was reading through the book. And the book referenced a passage from the Bible that said, love others as you love yourself. And I realized in that moment that I was limited in the way that I could love others, specifically because of where I was and what I was focused on. I was limited in the way that I could love my wife because I did not love myself. Now, you already made mention, I'm a former military officer. I was raised by a military officer. I probably didn't historically use that kind of language (laughs) about loving me. Yet, at this moment, which I would have been in my mid-40s at the time, at this moment, it was earth-shaking. Because what I knew in that moment, almost instantaneously, was there's a difference between not loving yourself or the absence of self-love and self-hate. I did not hate myself. I just didn't love myself. And the difference was pretty glaring for me in that moment. Until I loved myself, my capacity to love was limited. Love others as you love yourself. The, The ceiling is set. The lid is set. Until the lid changes, the offering won't change. That's a spiritual invitation to me. That's an invitation closer to God. And I literally started having a conversation with God right there on that couch and saying, God, I don't think I love myself. And long and short of it is, in that next few minutes, I simply had a realization of the love of God for me. And the invitation from God to me was to agree with him about how he loved me, thus loving me too. Even in Christian circles, sometimes that would be looked at with some scrutiny initially. Well, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that prideful? And I can tell you as a recovering practitioner of pride (laughs) that pride is not the presence or the exhibition of loving yourself. In fact, Pride is overcompensation for the absence of loving yourself. Pride is not agreeing with the Lord about how he feels about you. It would be prideful and a bit disrespectful to disagree disagree with your creator about how he feels about you. And so to agree with God about his love for us is actually incredibly humble and it facilitates humility. It sets us in a posture 
to be comfortable with who we are. And when we're comfortable with who we are, we can give away everything that God's given us to give away to others. Talk about, talk about identity. You mentioned that word a moment ago, and, and you and I have discussed on numerous occasions that pretty much everything in life begins and ends right there. How do people uh, get sucked into the vortex or the matrix of wrongful identity or you know, imposed identity, as I like to call it? What, what does that look like in relationship to what you're talking about here? How do people begin to, to turn up the volume and become aware, maybe I'm functioning out of a perception of myself that's not accurate at all? Yeah, so it's going to show up in a variety of ways. It's kind of what's your, what's your, what's your flavor almost. So for some, uh, with questions of identity or with uh, even a crisis of identity, it's going to go anywhere from very socially acceptable things like overworking or being a bit of a workaholic to things that are clearly aberrant and uh, problematic from all kinds of addictions, whether they be sexual or with with substances or whatever the case may be. And so you can really run the spectrum. You can be the most well-presented uh, city councilman and deacon in the church that you want to be. But if you're so jammed up about who you are and everything that you do is to prove something to other people, that's going to come out of you in various ways. The people that are closest to you are going to know it. Marriages are going to suffer. Children's stories will reflect a life given over to a pursuit of affirmation that seeks to settle the identity question. However, never will. It's a, it's a rat's wheel, so to speak, that you'll just stay on. So the, the substitutes are numerous or possible and, the, there's only one cure that I've ever found or that I've even come across. If you want to know who you are, you've got to go to the design. If you go to the design, it takes you to a designer. And so I say designer thinking in my mind, designer with a capital D for me and anybody I've seen settle this question. It's that they know that they know who they are because the one capital O that created them just flat out reveals it to them. So I'm going to get off in the weeds here a little bit because I think I think this is a relevant conversation. By the way, for those that are listening right now, we this is going to be part one of a two-part interview. So we're going to dive as deep as we can here in our allotted time today. Then we're going to come back next week and do a little bit more of this. Uh, but I want to get off in the weeds a bit here. Let's talk about, because uh, I, I speak to a broad audience, some Christian, some non-Christian, you know, some people who are agnostic, atheist, I don't know, all across the board. But but let's talk to those who are Christians and who have a quote-unquote church or religious background. Uh, this word grace that you keep mentioning is oftentimes misunderstood or misrepresented or at the very least maybe misappropriated. So as you have come to understand it, how do you position the grace you're talking about in the book Abundant and Free? How do you position that towards some of the teachings and some of the nuances and some of the weirdness that goes on uh, in the religious sector. Sure. I was ministering at a men's event a few years ago and we were on a break and a gentleman came over to me on the break and he said to me, Hey, you, you talk a lot about grace. And uh, he goes, uh, what about hyper grace? So that's the term that's often been kind of used as a counterbalance to those that might misuse the term grace or at least perceived to be. And so I looked at him and I said, it was almost instinctual. I said, 
Yeah, there's no such thing as hyper grace. If there's hyper grace, then it was never grace in the first place. True grace isn't something that people take advantage of. When you realize grace for what it is, and that is a, a free gift, when you realize the value and the depth that grace takes you, you're, you're not seeking ways to bend rules, get around rules, uh, do whatever, quote unquote, bad things. That's not a reaction to grace. That's a perversion of grace. And perversions of grace were never grace in the first place. Mm. So just labeling it something, calling it grace, doesn't make it grace. There's a truth and a depth and a weight to, the, to grace. And, and so when you step into the depth of grace that's available through Jesus, then it's not a question of, now what do I do to get around the requirements? It's just, it's literally a deep, passionate relationship with a Savior that pours out His grace. And your attentions, your focus, and your passions are focused on Him. He draws you in by grace. He doesn't set you uh, astray by grace. That's not, uh, that's not legitimate grace. Let's look at the other side of that coin, too, because I suspect my background, my, my own church and religious background, would be on the other side of the spectrum. And that is that grace was really not something that we embraced so much. It was actually legalism, performance orientation. It was the list of do's and don'ts. It was the you're going to earn God's God's love and his favor and his blessing and his acceptance through some big long list of things you've got to perform up to. Uh, how do you how do you approach that and what do you say to the person who maybe has left that institution who follows that particular line of thought but yet in their mind and in their heart that that doctrine that theology that idea of performing up to acceptance still was very much a part of the fiber of their identity sure so um in John chapter one, it says, and I think I'm going to get this pretty close to right, but I don't have it in front of me, but it says basically this is that Moses brought us the law, but Jesus brings us grace and truth. Uh, again, forgive me if I've gotten off on a word there. I'm not reading it. right out. I don't have it in front of me. So Moses had the law. The law is eternally valid. Jesus, however, comes to satisfy the law. Mm-hmm. And in the structure of that sentence, he actually replaces the law with the truth. So the law is a subsection or a part of the broader and deeper truth. Then what does that do with the word grace as it relates to law and truth? Truth just replaced law, Jesus replacing Moses. And so what does grace do? Grace becomes the lens through which we see now the truth, what we used to do in the grace. I'm sorry, in the law. So grace is the lens that we see the truth. We used to do the law, which Moses brought. So those things that you described, anything that requires us to add to the grace of Jesus, the satisfaction of Jesus, the completed work of Jesus, anything that causes us to strive as if we're still under the curse to get around potential consequences instead of simply receiving the finished work, anything that we do in that realm is either under the law or an attempt to fulfill the law, which has already been proven we can't do. We always needed, always need, always will need the grace of Jesus. So those efforts are futile. I guess I heard one one person say one time, hey, if you're trying really hard to get everything right, I'd encourage you to do one of two things, either give up and receive the grace of Jesus or 
try real, try harder right now and go ahead and get to the end of yourself that much quicker. Wow. That's stout. So in the book, Abundant and Free, uh, you, gosh, there's so many powerful concepts in here. Overall, though, you're leading a person to to change the lens, change the set of glasses, I say often. How do they see life? How do they see themselves starting with? How do they see God? Uh, I would assume the lens of grace has to do with how we see God, too. Yeah, I'd say that you mentioned this a minute ago, but I believe all identity is based, I'm sorry, all freedom is based in identity. Okay. And that's the identity that you know, it's your identity that you know for yourself that God's put in you, but it's also a proper view of who God is for who he says he is, not who you want him to be. So it's identity of you, but also who who he is and how you're related in him. There's a, there's a chapter in here titled The Pain of Appropriation. What does that mean? How, how do we embrace, uh, if we're going to go from the lens of justice to the lens of grace, there, there's a process of appropriation there. And I'm assuming in, in this chapter, from what I can see, you're talking about how it's not necessarily easy to make that transition. Yeah. So what I've found is uh, both in scripture, but also in, as in personal experience is this, is that we're not going to get from one place to the next by reading about it. The reading about it, the knowledge of the word, for instance, is invaluable. It's, it's necessary for how we go forward in life, how we advance, how we progress, how we grow. But the transformation comes by the experience that changes us from the inside out, then giving depth of understanding and effect wisdom to the knowledge that we previously had. In James chapter one, I think it says, count it all joy when you experience trials it goes on in that same chapter a few sentences later and says, if you lack wisdom, ask. But if you ask, don't be double-minded or you're going to be thrown all over the place. I believe it says like a ship without a rudder or something like that. So here's the point is you, you can get wisdom. You can get depth of understanding. You can get transformation, but it's going to come by trials as often as it comes by anything else. And so the pain of appropriation is this. There's an opportunity for us to grow in understanding and mature in our realization of our identity, the opportunity is going to come through the challenges to our soul, which oftentimes presents just flat out pressure on us physically. In other words, we're going to have to physically deal with circumstances that cause us to look within us and connect to God as our source because the things that we were doing aren't working anymore. I think I tell a a story in that chapter, if I remember correctly, I came across a lady in the courtroom and, uh, and she was at the docket on the wall where the, the hearings are listed. And she asked me about where a certain courtroom was. And I told her and she told me she was nervous or afraid or something. And I, I said, what are you upset about? And she said, well, my son has a trial today. And I said, oh, really? What's he, what's he on trial for? She said, possession of marijuana, I think if I recall correctly. And, and I said, okay, well, what are you nervous about? And she said, well, I could go to jail. I'm sorry, he could go to jail. And I said, okay. And I knew because of where we were in the courthouse, this was an adult courtroom. This was not a juvenile courtroom. I said, but what is that a problem to you? Why is that a problem for you? And she said, well, he's my baby. I said, well, no, he's not really your baby. This is an adult courtroom. How old is he? And I think he was 19 or 20 years old. And, and about that time he walked over and I said, is this him? And she said, yeah. And I said, hi. And I shook his hand and introduced myself and he introduced himself. And I said, Hey, 
I understand you uh, you got caught with marijuana. And he said, yes, sir, yes, or whatever he said. And I said, well, look, uh, when I was a little boy, I acted like one. And when I grew up and became a man, I put that stuff behind me, and it's time for you to grow up. You need to quit getting your mom to drive you to the courthouse, take you to trials for things that you shouldn't be doing in the first place. You need to get a job. You need to get a driver's license. You're a full-grown man, and it's time to be one. And the interesting reaction was this. Everything about that young man seemed to come alive. His shoulders went back. His eyes locked in on me. His, there was no question I had his attention. He was challenged. He was called into it, and he was ready to go. The mom, by contrast, looked like she was about to faint, that somebody was talking to him like that. The point that I was making was he had to go to court and deal with whatever his consequences were, then get on about his business. The consequences were going to be good for him. I, I, at one point in the conversation, I looked, looked at her and said, if he goes to jail, which was doubtful, but if he goes to jail, get in your car and drive home. It'll be good for him. When he gets out of jail, he'll probably stop using marijuana or doing whatever the kind of things he does that get him in this kind of trouble. He needs the consequences because what he's doing isn't working. So those are just practical things that we all probably can think back on times of our lives where we go, you know, I was off the rails right there. And until such and such happened, I didn't have a depth of understanding that there was a better way. The Bible says that it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Well, kindness is kind by contrast to other things. In other words, if everything's kind and everything's okay, then kindness doesn't even seem good. But when we deal with circumstances that are challenging to us, then the kindness of the Lord will draw us close to him. When we decide not to opt into other things and instead draw close to God, then from the inside out, we'll realize things like freedom and identity and grace and those kind of things. That's powerful. My guest today is a dear friend, Scott Prickett. His book is Abundant and Free, Seeing Life Through the Lens of Grace. And we're going to have a link up in our show notes where you can get a copy of this from Amazon.com. And uh, Scott, we're going to continue this conversation in the next episode. So uh, you and I are going to take a break. And uh, I just want to encourage everybody to tap into Scott Prickett. Scott, you have a blog. I want to mention this right now while I'm here uh, and we have our folks listening. Tell everybody where they can go and tap into some of your writings and things you're doing online. Sure. It's just scottprickett.com, S-C-O-T-T-P-R-I-C-K-E-T-T.com. I write uh, blogs there regularly and books are available on there and just it's a way to connect. Awesome. Hey, man, thanks for being here. We'll pick it up in the next session. Thanks, Brian. Here's this week's tools, tips, and recommended resources guaranteed to amplify your leadership and accelerate your personal growth. Well, you probably noticed we've turned things around a bit today because of the interview. And so right here in tips, tools, and resources, I just want to remind you that you can get your very own copy of Scott's book. I'm telling you, this one is going to change your life forever. You can find the book, of course, on Amazon.com, but I encourage you to go to his website, scottprickett.com, S-C-O-T-T-P-R-I-C-K-E-T-T.com. Get your copy of the book right now. This book, which is titled Abundant and Free, subtitle Seeing Life Through the Lens of Grace. I'm telling you, if you've heard this episode, you know what I'm talking about you got to get your hands on the principles contained in this book. It will absolutely make a huge difference in your life. Once again, scottprickett.com. Subscribe to his website. Check out his blog. Get in touch with him. I'm telling you, you will never be the same as a result. Get the book, Abundant and Free, 
by Scott Prickett. If you're ready to take your life and leadership to another level and are committed to doing whatever necessary to become the influencer God has created you to be, then you are ready for this week's Influencers Challenge. Well, I don't even know what to add, frankly, to this incredible interview today other than to say this. As Scott was sharing with us today about these various areas of life, marriage, our job, if we own a business, how we relate to employees and those that we contract with, maybe how we relate to those people who are our customers or the people who partake in our product, our services, how we relate to in ministry settings. If you're a pastor, a church leader, uh, as you look at the scope of the work that you do, can you see the value of changing the lens from justice to the lens of grace? Here's what I want to challenge you to do this week as we prepare for next week's episode. Sit down, listen to the podcast again, and as you're doing so, turn the volume up with your own internal dialogue, that spirit part of you, and listen. What areas in your life, your marriage, relationship with your kids, the people that you work with, the friends that you hang out with, the people that you do life with, What relationships, what areas in your life do you need to shift your perspective from justice and making it right to shifting over to this beautiful, incredible, life-altering lens of grace? Make a list. This week, I'm going to challenge you. Make a list of areas where you know this applying this principle would make a huge difference in your life. Don't settle for a life that is less than what God has for you. Step into grace and learn what it looks like to do life through the lens of grace. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Strategic Living Podcast. We trust this program has been a valuable resource and has challenged you to take your life and leadership to the next level. We invite you to join our growing community of strategic influencers by connecting with us at brianholmes.com. As always, if this podcast and our other resources have benefited you, be sure to share them and pass it on. Until next time, may God bless you immensely. And remember, you are created for greatness.